Amen. I like that prayer, a prayer for stillness and action. It reminds me of what we've been learning in this book of James. He's kind of calling us into this place of stillness, but also this place of action as opposed to a place of loudness and a place of opinion. Um, we've uh, covered a lot of ground in this series, and we're going to wrap it up today. Uh, do you remember when we started this thing? We got through one verse that first Sunday, and we thought we were never going to end this book. But here we are. We're going to get through 13 verses today, and we're going to look at what James says in kind of two chunks. Um, and it's going to be his closing words to us. We've come a long way. I want us to remember the arc of what we're going to do in uh, the, the next year or so. We, we started with James, which was a, a book written probably the first in the New Testament around the mid-40s A.D. We're going to take a break here for Advent. We're going to do Adventy stuff. And then we're going to come back in January, and we're going to tackle another letter, the letter from Peter, 1 Peter, which was written around the mid-60s A.D. And then we're going to take another little break from the study of letters, and we're going to do Lent stuff and Easter. And after Easter, we're going to come back. We're going to look at the letter of 1 John, which was written around 90 AD. And it's this fascinating arc of scripture that we're going to study. These three letters track the movement of Christianity from the beginnings when it was just in its infancy and James is writing about this like fragile new thing of faith in Jesus to 1 Peter in the 60s AD, Christianity was a substantial force with a clear identity, to the 90s AD when John writes when it is this mature and grown-up movement that is challenging the systems of the world. But it really starts with James, who is just trying to help his readers understand what it means to even have faith in Jesus. Remember, uh, weeks ago, we said that first week that James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, he didn't believe in Jesus at first, but the death and the resurrection of his brother so changed his life that everything in his life became about serving Jesus as Lord. And he writes this letter to help us know how to do the same. He's trying to be a guide for us. He's given us some great guidance to review, you'll remember he told us that our faith in Jesus should change everything for us. And that means it should change everything inside of us. He told us that God is going to strategically use trouble in our life to shape us into something. He told us we need to slow down. We need to understand those broken desires inside of us that lead us to temptation and lead us to sin. He told us we need to say less. We need to say less. We need to do more to love the afflicted. He told us our faith, it isn't just for us as individuals, but it was given to each other. It was given uh, for the world. He told us that real faith is going to change us, and we shouldn't just try to keep it at arm's length, but we should let it disrupt us. He told us that our words are so powerful. And we should not destroy with that power, but we should build up with it. He told us that our self-focus, it leads to all sorts of conflicts, and that brokenness will lead us to reconciliation. He told us there is no spiritual quality that will have a greater impact on the bottom line of our spiritual life more than humility. Last week, he told us we should stop making the story about us. <laughs> We shouldn't make it about our judgments, our plans, our wealth, all that stuff. Instead, we need to make this story about Jesus and what he is doing on earth. And that's where we've been. <clears throat> 
Would you look at that list for a second? That's some really good guidance, some amazing guidance for our faith. I want to add one more thing to it today, and this is where he's going to end his letter. He is going to tell us that we need to live with the end in mind and take good care of each other. That's it. That's the letter of James. If you've walked with us over these last few months, maybe take a picture of that. That's a, some pretty powerful stuff. I mean, that's a lot to cover in a short amount of time. I, I hope you've enjoyed the series as much as I have. This has been a very rich book for me just to dig into. Um, and now we want to dig into his final words to us. So find in your Bible James chapter 5. Remember, uh, we said last week he's not going to end with a lot of pleasantries. He's not going to end with say hello to so-and-so. He's just going to end with some really solid advice and guidance on living out the faith. And here is what he says. James 5 verse 7. James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord... See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fail or may not fall under condemnation. Let's pause right there. That'll be the first chunk that we want to look at. Now, he's talking about a lot of things here, and it's very simple, some of the advice that he gives us, but I think the big mindset that he's talking about is to realize that this will be over soon right? To live with the end in mind. And he says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says, Jesus is going to come back. This is imminent. Now, you'll notice if you've read the Bible, that there's a lot of scripture that talks that way, like talks about this idea that Jesus could return like at any minute. And yet, here we are nearly 2,000 years later, and he still hasn't returned. How do we make sense of this? I want you to notice, what, who does James point to as the example of what he's talking about? This sort of patient hope and expectation that the Lord is going to return and make all things right. His example is the prophets in Job. And it's notable that those are people who lived hundreds or even thousands of years before James wrote this. So he's not saying like, hey, he's going to come back any moment like the prophets experienced, Right? He may have thought Jesus was going to return at any moment, but I think what he's really saying is there is this mindset that the prophets had that God is in fact going to work. He is going to work soon. He is going to do something on the earth. He is going to return. He is going to make it right. It's this idea that the compassionate, merciful Lord is about to act. Live with that hope. That's what he's encouraging. This is not intended to be a prophecy. It's, it's a challenge to have this mindset of hope and expectation like the prophets had. He says, listen, when you live that way, as if Jesus is going to come back really soon, with that end in mind, it'll be a little bit easier for you to be patient about the timing of things because you know whatever it is, whatever this is right now, it's temporary. 
We'll grumble about people less when we live that way because we're not so focused on what's happening right now in front of us. We'll be more steadfast when we live that way. Remember, steadfastness was a word that he used right at the beginning of this letter. It is that quality that helps you finish a marathon. It is that sort of inner strength that I can face what is coming. He said the prophets had a lot of that because they realized the end of this thing. And then he throws this in, weirdly. He says that when we live with the end in mind, we will not swear oaths which I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to guess that probably that's not been a huge problem in your life. You probably have gotten through the week without swearing any oaths. Like, we're not a real oath-swearing sort of culture. What in the world, is, how do we apply this to us? I think, I think what he's talking about, and I think the cultural comparison is, there's just this eagerness or this drive to just make something happen. It's like, I swear it's got to happen. And it's kind of this tendency that we have as humans to overreach, to get ahead of God and try to force something into existence. That's what swearing oaths is. It's kind of this human way of overreaching. And he's saying, listen, instead of constantly trying to make these things happen, just let your heart sit in this truth. Jesus will return and he will restore all things, every last one of them. And we don't know how it's going to happen, and we don't know when it's going to happen, but what we know is what the prophets knew, that it is going to happen. And that's what we hold on to. And I think this is why he brings up Job and the prophets, is because they knew that God was going to do something, but they had to face this tension and this uh, frustration and this anxiety and this grief of what they were dealing with on a day-to-day basis while holding on to this hope that eventually God would act. And I bet we're like that. I bet if, if you and I, if it was just the two of us, just you and I just talking face-to-face, I bet we would honestly both say that that we are wrestling right now with some frustration. That we are wrestling right now with maybe some anxiety and just like in our heart of hearts, there's just this feeling that something is not right. I hate that feeling. I think we're all feeling it. And I bet if it was just you and I and we were just being honest with each other, we'd say that this year has been a year that we have experienced some grief. That there's been some things lost in this year that we may not get back, that we really wanted. I hate that feeling. What James is encouraging us is that in those moments when we feel that frustration that we all surely feel, when we feel that grief that we all surely feel, that just like Job and just like the prophets who lived with a lot of that, we can hang on to this fact that we know how the story ends. And I know it's frustrating, but we know our frustrated and our anxious hearts have a home that God is preparing for us. And we know this, that there is no grief, that there is no tear that has been shed that will not be accounted for, will not be wiped away. And our frustration and our grief is very real, but it also is temporary because our restoration is at hand. That's the end of the story. 
And so with that end in mind, we pick ourselves up and we walk patiently and steadfastly towards that day of restoration. But, and this is really important, we don't do it alone. And that's where James really wants to end this letter. Or I don't know if he wants to, but that is where he puts the pen down uh, with this last section of scripture. Look at verse 13. He writes this. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Pinned down, that's where he ends it. He says a lot here, but I think the, the core of it is this admonition to us, to his readers, take good care of one another. It's interesting where he starts to me. He starts with physical sickness, doesn't he? He says, if, if someone's sick, we'll pray for him, anoint him with oil, look out for him, take care of him. And it's fascinating to me that that's where he starts. It, that, it, we may not think of that, but part of our job as a community of faith is to provide care for people who are physically sick. That's what he says. And if you're wondering, like, why are we trying to listen to the medical professionals when it comes to this COVID-19 stuff, and why are we trying to follow the requirements and all that sort of stuff, it's not because we're afraid. That's not why. It's not because, as someone wrote to me earlier this summer, they emailed me this, that we're allowing the Sanhedrin of the Colorado government to tell us how to worship. That's not it. That's not what we're doing. It's actually because God's people have always been in the business of looking after those who are sick. That's what James says. Look after them. And so we want to do that as best we can in this moment with the information that we've been provided. But of course, James, he's not just talking about physical illness. He's also talking about spiritual healing, right? He's talking about spiritual restoration. He's talking about forgiveness he says, part of how we become healed spiritually is by confessing to one another. See, God's grace can touch our hearts when we confess our sin to another person in ways that it cannot if we are just doing private individual confession with God. Now, it, hear me, we should do private individual confession with God, but our wandering hearts need other people too. God designed it that way. God designed us to look after one another when we're struggling, when we're sinning, when we're wandering. And so James' final sentence is just, hey, look after those who wander. And then after he writes that, he, he puts his pen down and he kind of walks away from this letter and that's where he ends it. He ends it with this admonition to live with the end in mind and also take good care of one another. And I think, honestly, that is a pretty good place to end. Um, 
what I want to do is just, let me just apply kind of those two concepts for us in maybe two ways that connect to my heart. Hopefully they'll connect to yours. The first one is this. It comes from a metaphor that James uses in verse 7. Uh, here's how I would describe it. Farm your hope. Farm your hope is the sentence. Uh, you know, hopelessness, it's like a soul sickness, right? Like when you lose hope, it just, it can crush your faith. We were made for hope. But what's really notable to me, what should make us sit up and take notice, is that when he talks about having hope in a God who will return and restore all things, he uses this metaphor of farming to talk about it. And that, we should pay attention to that. He's talking about waiting for rain. He's talking about this very patient uh, uh, kind of awareness of how things grow. And I suspect that's because uh, I think farmers think differently about time than us city folk do. Farmers do things that they don't expect to pay off for like six months or 12 months or a year. I don't, I don't know how crops work, but you know, they do, they do something and it's going to pay off much later because nothing about farming is quick. James is brilliant to connect that to hope and to connect that to our faith. This sort of confidence that comes from knowing the God who will return and restore all things, that is not something that comes overnight. It's not quick. It's something that is developed over time. It is developed slowly. And so when I say farm your hope, what I just mean is this. Give your heart a chance to grow. It takes time. This life of faith doesn't happen overnight. You plant, you water, you wait for rain. And if you know someone who you look at and you say, gosh, I, I admire their faith. Look at how confident they are in what God is doing in their life no matter what the world throws at them. I promise you, there is a long story behind that confidence and behind that hope. They've spent time farming it. And if we want to be people of hope, we have to think a little bit more like farmers. What are those things that we could do right now that will not pay off right now, but may pay off over the next few years? That's the stuff to do. Hope is like farming. Faith is like farming. It takes time, and we have to think about it that way. That's why James uses this metaphor. Now, one thing that I think we could do that may not pay off right away but will pay off over time is the second way that I want to apply this, and it's just simply this. Try not to wander off. <laughs> Try not to wander off from the community of faith. I've been connected to church my whole life, all right? So I will tell you the truth about church, maybe the truth that others will not tell you. This is what you need to know about church. Church is always disappointing. Always. It is. Because people, I don't know if you've noticed, are frustrating. We are. We're just, we're really frustrating. I'm so sorry I'm so frustrating. We're just, we're frustrating as people. And also, if you stay connected, if you stay patiently connected to the community of faith and to other believers who love Jesus and have grace for you, it will pay off over time, despite how frustrating we can be. So try not to wander off. The community, it's also like farming, right? Like farmers, think about this, could work really hard all day, and when they stop, they look out, and it still basically is just a field of dirt, right? Um, 
but in a few months, they have corn, or I, you know, I, I don't know how it works, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Eventually, something sprouts up. The community of faith and the community of believers is like that. This family of God stuff we do, sometimes you work really hard to engage, and you're patient, and you have conversations, and at the end of the day, all you feel like you have is dirt. But that dirt is the context, if you'll stay with it, out of which God will sprout something up in your life. James is talking about people who wander away from God spiritually, and that's kind of scary to me. You you know what I have observed just as a pastor, just knowing a lot of people uh, who are trying to pursue God? I've known a lot of people who have wandered away from him. This is an observation. Nine out of ten times what precedes us wandering away from God is us wandering away from community. Almost every time. Because community is hard, because it's disappointing, because someone will say something you disagree with, because our needs will go unmet. And so we give up on each other, and then eventually we wander from the God we once loved. Um, I wish it wasn't like this sometimes, but we were meant for connection, and you cannot do this faith alone. We all really struggle with connection, all of us struggle with this thing that we're trying to do. You see that in James's letter, right? Clearly he's writing to people who are struggling with this thing that they're trying to do. And I think that's why he just ends with this appeal. Take care of each other. Look out for those who are wandering. He's trying to get it through to us. We need each other desperately. And so as believers, we have to be cautious about our tendency to wander off. It's hard work to stay together and help each other, but that's where he leaves us. It reminds me of a story that I want to close with today. Um, Margaret Mead uh, was a famous anthropologist. I don't know a lot of anthropologists. I know uh, that name. She uh, lived a while ago. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in the late 70s, spent her whole life studying humans, studying human civilization. Um, One time she was asked by one of her students what she thought was the oldest evidence of humanity that we've ever found. She did not say anything about like pottery shards or, you know, ancient religious artifacts or ruins that they discovered. Instead, what she said, uh, it was a 15,000-year-old femur bone that had fractured and then healed. Now, the femur bone is the longest bone in the human body, and I am told if you break your femur, it is excruciating. Someone from the first service actually had that horrible experience, and he said, yes, it is horrifically excruciating. And basically, you are incapacitated for weeks on end if you break your femur. You can't hunt for food. You can't run from predators. You can't do any of the things that you would have to do to survive 15,000 years ago on this planet. Your only hope for recovery from an injury like that is you find another human to take care of you. In the animal kingdom, injuries like that mean you become food, right? That's kind of how it works. But we humans aren't just animals. We're humans. 
We are created with this divine purpose. And I think what Margaret Mead is pointing to is the same thing that the letter of James is pointing to, is that we are not really human, at least not by God's definition of the word, not by the definition of the word that we are created to embody. We are not really human unless we are taking good care of someone else. That is evidence of our humanity. That is what makes us human. Animals live for themselves. Humans were designed and given this purpose by our creator to take care of others. That's why Jesus says, listen, by far the most important thing that you could ever do is to love God fully with everything you've got. And by the way, the second thing is just like that first thing, to look after and care for your neighbor. That's what you were created for, for those two things somehow together. This is why James spends so much time talking about looking after the afflicted. Because this is who we were created to be. It's what sets us apart from everything else in all of creation. And when we go against that and we make our lives about ourselves, we're not just sinning, but we're dehumanizing ourselves. Because we were created for more. And as we end the study of James, I think what James wanted his readers to sit with is it's pretty good for us to sit with to today. You know, we we're made for this hope and the restoration that God brings. But I, I bet I'm not alone in saying my hope has taken a beating lately. What tends to happen in those moments is we tend to start looking after ourselves. James says, no, no, go in the other direction. That's what you were created for. You need each other. Understand, you were made to take care of each other. And that's a pretty good place to end this study. You know, hey, I don't, I don't know everyone in our community of faith. I certainly don't know everyone here as well as I would like to, but I am wise enough to know this. We need you as a part of this community. And you need us. We... We will be frustrating and disappointing, I promise. We won't always know what to do with our faith, but what we do know is how this thing is going to end. He will come and he will restore all things and he will make all things new. We don't know how he's gonna do it, but we do know that he's gonna do it. And until that day, we're gonna work with him and do what we can in his name. We're gonna look after each other. We're gonna look after our neighbors because we were created with that divine purpose. And so as we close today, I think I I just want us to end with this picture of the destiny that we have been given. It's not the destiny that you've been given or the destiny that I've been given, but it's the destiny that has been given to us. It involves us all. My favorite picture comes from Revelation 21. This is the end of all things. The author writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. 
neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And good riddance. I think James would add this. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for that coming of the Lord is at hand. And because we've been given this amazing destiny, because the restoration of all things is at hand, let's stick to each other. Let's take good care of each other, and let's hold on to this hope. So God, we come to you, and we're thankful that you've given us a picture of how this thing ends we confess that sometimes our frustration and our grief, it's a lot to carry. So God, fix in our hearts this picture of what you're doing, of how you're restoring. God, we pray that you would empower us as a community to just stick with each other, to look after one another when we wander. We can't do that without you, Lord. We know we were created for it. We ask that you would empower it and that you would make it come to pass here. We thank you for James. Thank you for his guidance. Continue to shape us, Lord.